Today on the Real Clear Defense podcast, Hot Wash, RCD contributor John Waters and I talk to retired Marine Major Fred Galvin about his new book, A Few Bad Men, the true story of U.S. Marines ambushed in Afghanistan and betrayed in America. Galvin enlisted in the Marine Corps as a 17-year-old and quickly deployed to combat in the Persian Gulf. A few years later, he commissioned as a Marine officer and served with elite infantry, reconnaissance, and force reconnaissance units. In early 2007, Major Galvin deployed to eastern Afghanistan to lead the 1st Marine Special Operations Task Force, or MARSOC, in combat. Shortly after deploying, Galvin and his men found themselves in an ambush along Highway 1 in Badikot. Before they had even returned to their base, accusations of killing civilians rocketed through the media. Galvin was removed from command and faced a court of inquiry, the first for the Marines in 65 years. Ultimately cleared of all accusations, Galvin's story ultimately cleared of all accusations, Galvin's story touches on the complicated and sometimes adversarial relationship between the Marine Corps and its special operations units. Fred Galvin, thanks for joining John Sorensen and me, John Waters, today to talk about your new book, A Few Bad Men. Welcome to Hot Wash. Thank you very much. I appreciate both you gentlemen having me as your guest. And Fred, we've talked before. We put out an interview piece just a few days ago. And so I want to start in a strange place of this story. Take me back to when you got out of the Marine Corps, retired early as a major, moved back to your hometown of Kansas City, Missouri or Kansas side? You didn't tell me which. I lived on the Kansas side. I had my business on the primarily on the Missouri side. Take me into what that business was, why you were doing it. You're right. I did retire. Uh, that was not my intention. I reached service limitations. So Marine Corps upper out and I uh, had enrolled at a university in, in Texas. And then our oldest sister ended up getting ovarian cancer. So I moved back to Kansas city to take care of her. And I, uh, then transferred to the University of Missouri, Kansas City, their MBA program. I had been applying prior to leaving the Marine Corps to jobs all over the country and then later all over the globe, uh, up to 700 jobs that I really was tailoring the entire resume to those jobs. And then I was realizing that I'm not having any success whatsoever, uh, but in the Court of Inquiry, there was two of us, myself and one other co-defendant. Uh, I was the one that entered the courtroom from the front of the courtroom and uh, the media took all the photos. So I was kind of the poster boy. And it, uh, I didn't realize how severely that affected you know, my professional career going forward. So I started a small business. Fred, you started that small business because you couldn't get any of those jobs. That's, is that right? That is 100% correct. And I know there's lots of people, they, they're they happy just retiring. I, uh, I did have my hands full with going to school and uh, taking care of our sister. We started a 100% program charity for the Gold Star families of Mid-America. And that was a great opportunity to linking them up with uh, collegiate and professional sports teams and providing them a scholarship and several different morale events a year. And, uh, but I immediately started a business the day I retired from the Marine Corps and that business 
was similar to a, a friend who had served in the Marine Corps. He had indoor ATMs. I, I saw an opportunity in Kansas City for these outdoor drive-up automatic teller machines that I put um, in what I call a denied area. And having been in the Marines in force reconnaissance, conducting raids in very uh, tricky areas, I learned, I knew how to get into and out of those areas safely. And so I looked at the highest, looked on the cover, Jackson County website for the highest uh, population densities. Those are the ones darkest color yellow. I overlaid that with the violent crime reports, circle those intersections, go do ground reconnaissance. And I look for two primary things. I look for, are they selling cash? Are they using cash? Because that was my product, my inventory. And then two, if I felt that I could be killed on that property, because this was in the extremely violent area of Eastern Jackson County in Kansas City, Missouri, that's where I was going to put an ATM. Because what I was learning in business school, as far as the blue ocean strategy was uh, have a differentiator that other competitors, other sharks can't easily replicate and, and chew you up. So what I did is I put it in the high violent crime areas and, uh, grew to be the fastest and largest uh, ATM network, drive-up network in the city, in the metro area. How many, Fred, how many ATM machines did you have outdoors in inner city, Kansas City? Yeah, that was 19. So I did a, you know, using that analysis, that kind of was the secret recipe. And it was very dangerous, though. So I ran that for four and a half years before I was able to sell that. But these these machines... For those who are in the military, I kind of reference this kind of like an up-armored ATM machine. Uh, I built it uh, 96 inches long, 48 inches wide, 96 inches tall. And I put port, almost like a old football post, an H vertically steel, uh, horizontal steel, welded to uh, the steel bollards on the side. So uh, those who thought they may be able to take this down I-70 and carve it up in some warehouse. It just put that thought in their head that, okay, these are intentionally emplaced and this is going to take my time. And if I try to rip this out, I'm going to need a torch and saw and maybe some explosives and Kansas city will probably roll me up before uh, I, I can effectively do this. So I never had any problem, but it was extremely dangerous to reload those machines. So not only would I do the, business development and meet the property owners, I would install the machines, uh, bolt them in, uh, and then I would program them, maintain them, and uh, load the cash, which uh, that was very tricky. And after four and a half years, I was uh, lucky enough to be able to transition and sell that to uh, two other competitors that bought me out. And I'm struck by this, Fred, because you said I've moved into areas where I felt I could be killed. And it's one thing for me, John Sorensen, to feel like we could be killed, corporate guys. <clears throat> but you had been a force reconnaissance Marine, a MARSOC special operator, an officer in the Marine Corps, and you had that feeling. How did the feeling on the ground in inner city Kansas City compare to the feeling you had in combat zones? There's some similarities and differences. The similarity was, you know, for me, I'm very strong in my Christian faith. So I realized that uh, the mission started ahead of 
uh, going out into this, basically it's a war zone and I stuck out like a sore thumb. So I try to uh, blend in. And uh, so I'd wear local garb, hoodies and uh, oversized clothes to conceal my uh, body armor. And I'd be carrying uh, well over a hundred thousand in cash. Uh, looked like a homeless person as much as I could. Uh, but that's, that's the only job I could do. It was effective. Uh, wasn't glamorous. I remember being on a date one time they had to service a machine and uh, my girlfriend was like, Pardon my technical terms, but she's like, you know, you need some balls to do that job. <laughs> I had to go incognito, uh, put on my concealed carry subcompact pistol and body armor and kind of freaked her out a little bit. But I had a standard that if there was any type of operational malfunction, I would be on that objective within an hour to resolve that so that that brand Arrowhead Capital would would be known that it always has cash or maintained. It's clean. I took some lessons from the Marine Corps that, uh, like on a Friday morning, uh, inspection, you back that off to the left. You know, there's Marines going radical with a field day, taking everything out of the rooms. I'd put pine oil. So it, it looked and smelt, you know, your olfactory senses. You felt like, even though you're in Kansas city, that you're in the middle of a pine forest and it was spotless because every <laughs> other machine you had to touch these machines, but I did also transition. I was the first to go to touchless ATM machines and uh, people, they liked the safety of being in their car. This was large signage, large lights, overt cameras. So it's lit up like Las Vegas and people felt safe. It's clean. And then despite a lot of banks that like to offer the security and solitude, putting an ATM machine around the back I put these right up on the corner where the intersection was. So people, I never had any robberies or any, any issue like that. Thank God. But, uh, yes, a denied area. There was a lot of similarities to combat because, uh, you know, you were going into an area. One of the similarities, but differences is I knew my life could be required of me. However, I was going in by myself. I did hire some Marines over the years and uh, they were very, very, very short-lived, uh, mainly because of hours and then the threat. So uh, this was something that I wasn't going into with a platoon or even a team. Um, outside of about two weeks, I did this alone by myself, not in an armored car, but I'd use the tactics I'd learned in the Marines, doing a vehicle offset, uh, using the train, uh, popping up minimal exposure. I had my uh, cameras and I would check uh, my sensors to make sure that I'm going there in the lowest. I knew ahead of time the lowest uh, traffic as far as uh, transactions, but then I wanted to have my time be at the lowest visibility. So in these ATM machines, you actually unlock three, uh, you know, padlocks and then get into the machine and load it from the inside. So I was trying to mitigate that risk with minimal exposure. And so you said you used the training you acquired in the Marine Corps. And I want to use that to go back into your history in the Marine Corps because it's long. You had a long career. Uh, and we'll work up to the book, A Few Bad Men, uh, which you co-wrote with Salmana. But tell me about how your career in the Marine Corps started. What did you do? Good question. So, um, 
and some of that relates to what I'm doing now. So I started out in the Marine Corps uh, right after high school. I enlisted, went to boot camp, uh, was fortunate enough to be assigned out on the West Coast and uh, started uh, our first deployment. You know, I was a machine gunner with 50 cal on a, you know, Humvee, Humvees and five tons. Uh, but, uh, you know, we were the security for um, some of the echelons in the regimental landing team five on our first deployment. And this was during uh, desert shield and desert storm. So we deployed on the USS Tarawa. I was a corporal at that time. Uh, that was my first overseas deployment, first combat deployment. Um, prior to that, uh, I ran into a friend of mine that I went to high school with. He was in the chow hall there, at, uh, Los Flores. And, uh, which is where all the you know, recon units were and ran into him and he, talked to me and he, he was at first recon battalion. He told me, Hey, you should, uh, you should come over here and do this. And that's where the thought first came in my head about that career field. Uh, I went, shared some time in, in the evenings in his barracks, talked to his buddies. And I was like, this is what I want to do. So I took the indoctrination for that past it. And, um, without shaming anybody, I'll just say my executive, my company gunning or my pl- platoon sergeant, and the company gun, it gave me permission to take the indoc. My company executive officer, he was a uh, was just caught well nourished. He kind of had a resentment towards uh, reconnaissance marines or any type of elite uh, marine, and uh, so that kind of soured. That would be a recurring theme. Yeah, that soured my relationship with um, the company executive officer. Who any any type of person that is not an overachiever when they see somebody that maybe they, they sense could be eclipsing them. So he kind of had this negative, he put this blame on me. Like I'm trying to get out of this deployment, which I didn't, I wish I wasn't. And I, and I didn't. And even when I came back, I wanted to uh, go over to recon. And so he was prohibiting me. And that's what led me uh, to get out. And I uh, served in a local uh, reserve unit. I stayed out in California I went to uh, San Diego City College at Mesa City College, and then I transitioned to Cal State San Marcos. I got uh, two degrees, and I wanted to go right back in. So my family wanted me, mainly my mom, wanted me to go to uh, college. And so I I did, and I used the GI Bill. uh, Did it. I had some prior uh, academic credits from uh, my Rockhurst High School, so I I spent two years, did a one year at the city college, one year at uh, Cal State San Marcos, and I was done <laughs> with two degrees. I wanted to get back in the Marines. That time with the drawdown in the Clinton administration, I was a sergeant in the reserves. They, they did not allow me to go back in uh, just due to manning. So commissioning was the fastest way. But uh, I met with the recruiter. He was a little bit too straightforward. He was honest, but he was not telling me the, the whole truth. He just said, it's the needs of the Marine Corps. They need 250 uh, administrators. You're going to be a adjutant. And I was like, wow, that doesn't sound good. So I was dating this girl there at the campus. And then also the recruiters for, it came out for a career fair. And this guy talked to me about uh, investing, you know, he was an investment banker. So I started a penny stock firm, uh, 
very short-lived, went immediately over to uh, Smith Barney, which at that time was the largest firm on Wall Street. I was a bro- you know, retail broker there uh, from 93 to 95, and then I got commissioned in uh, December of 95, and then went on uh, back out to, did a year there in Quantico for training, and then back out to Camp Pendleton for my first tour as a platoon commander in the 1st Marine Division before going over to Force Recon, which uh, is where I spent the bulk of my career as an officer. And the book is A Few Bad Men, co-written by Fred Galvin. And so, Fred, you started off enlisted. You had some what they call broken time, came back in as an officer. You started off as an infantry officer, battalion reconnaissance, force reconnaissance. You finally worked your way into the brand new Marine Corps Special Operations Command in 2006, 2007 timeframe. Is that right? That's correct. That's when it was activated. And this culminates in you being deployed as the first MARSOC company in combat. And tell me about preparing for combat with MARSOC and then deploying. This was a very accelerated schedule. So a tiny bit of the background, as, as you well know, the Marine Corps views itself as an elite organization in and of itself. Uh, they've always resisted having an elite within elite. This has been proven multiple times, three specific occasions, uh, the disbandment of the Marine Raiders during combat in World War II in ni- February 1944. General Vandergriff signed a uh, one-letter statement saying it's not in the best interest of the Marine Corps to have an elite within elite. 1987, the formation of the U.S. Special Operations Command uh, the Marine Corps decided they did not want to provide any forces, and they did not. Um, in 2001, the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, following the attacks in Washington, D.C. and New York City, uh, required ordered all uh, U.S. armed services to increase their capacity for special operations. Uh, the Marine Corps resisted. Um, Marine Corps was then put more pressure by the Secretary of Defense. They sent a few liaison officers to Special Operations Command, followed by a, another slow roll experiment to this uh, two-year proof of concept with the Marine Corps Special Operations Command Detachment 1. Then they uh, Bush got reelected, kept Donald Rumsfeld as his Secretary of Defense. Rumsfeld ordered in November 2005 for the Marine Corps, you will activate the Marine Special Operations Command. And then on uh, February 24, 2006, Donald Rumsfeld, you can call him the godfather, officiated the marriage between the Marine Corps and Special Operations Command at Building 1, Camp Lejeune, uh, where I was, and that's when MARSOC was formed. So from that date, the commander of the U.S. Special Operations Command was there, the commander of the Marine Corps was there. I believe there was a lot of resistance on both sides, uh, for Army, General Brown, who was the commander of U.S. Special Operations Command, uh, General Brown being an Army general, and you can spell Special Operations Command, capital A-R-M-Y, and they have the preponderance of the force, 25,000. SEALs have 7,000. Marines came in with 25,000, and or 2,500. Uh, and that was the initial on paper. It's not how much we started with, but... Um, so the other services looked at uh, this newborn as another mouth to feed uh, competition. Uh, the the mistress meeting the wife, 
not necessarily wanted. And uh, there was extreme competition as soon as we deployed, mainly from the Green Bray side uh, of the house, but also from the Marine Corps. Uh, the, from the very start, uh, there was not a battalion. So there was just our company, Marine, Marine Corps Special Operations Company, Foxtrot. I'd asked the commanding general for every single thing was there's going to be no military construction. There are no procurements of weapons, although there's programs or records for binocular night vision, all kinds of new and sophisticated uh, technology that we were just told you're going to use what the Marine Corps has in the armory over there at second force recon. And that's it. Uh, So there was, I believe that was intentional. Although you're going from force recon companies on the east and west coast. And then you also had three platoons on Okinawa, total of 300 force recon Marines. Now we're going to 2,500. So the sheer increase of numbers, you have to project the increase of capacity and material for that. But, uh, there was, I believe the direct intention at up front, uh, when there was no roots that were being put down that, uh, we are going to uh, slow roll this and attempt to scuttle this as soon as possible. Uh, every the, the three questions that I asked our commanding general every weekly meeting was, and I submitted them as my commander's critical information requirements, what was our specified mission going to be? I needed to have that very clear. Were we going to train people or were we going to conduct the missions ourselves? The Green Braves had more of a a mission to advise and assist. And I needed to know if that was our role because that takes on different training requirements. Uh, then if we were going to do the missions ourselves, I needed to know if we were going to do deep reconnaissance, if we were going to do direct action, if we were going to do maritime. Uh, so that was very important. The second question is who specifically our task force was going to be working for so I could coordinate and integrate with that commander and his staff as early on as possible. And the third question was, I didn't need a a 10 digit grid on where we were going to camp out, but I needed to know the geographic area, whether it's Iraq, Afghanistan, somewhere else when we would deploy so that we could man train and equip our force uh, towards that, uh, that threat in that area. Asset each week uh, for 11 months before we deployed uh, we got some indications and warnings that are more leaning towards Iraq and a little bit here towards the end to Afghanistan, then back to Iraq, and then maybe the Horn of Africa, completely uncertain until we got on the ship. The USS Bataan started heading our way to uh, Europe, and then they told us we we're going to go to Afghanistan a week after we got on the ship. And Fred, correct me if I'm wrong, but some of that ambiguity is probably not unexpected by that point in your career. In the mid-2000s, deployments changed, timelines changed, destinations changed. But this situation was unique because you were in a brand new outfit and you were going to be assigned to a parent command that was not a Marine Corps regiment or a Marine Corps division. Yes, and that's a good good point, very good point. So at this time, 2006, when we were doing our workup, we had a complete shift. And if you recall, historically, there was a full page ad in the New York Times that ran. It was a hit article. Uh, it was titled General Petraeus. And General Petraeus was 
the commander of all forces in Iraq. They surged over 100,000 American forces into Iraq. Uh, it was very bloody. Marines and all, all sorts of American soldiers and Marines were getting killed and wounded. It was very unpopular. Uh, the Marine Corps pulled all of its forces out of Afghanistan in 2006 and sent them all to Iraq. So we were just, sur- everything was surging and Afghanistan was an economy of force. So we did think that there was a high probability the way things were trending between those two theaters that we could be very well going to Iraq. And that's what we'd hoped for, but we didn't count on. Our very first month long training evolution was up uh, in Northern Nevada in Hawthorne, uh, the high deserts. Uh, we wanted to make sure we were trained in in an environment that was uh, similar to what we could experience in Afghanistan because we just didn't know. Um, then the rest of the deployment, we were training with different special operations forces, the Army Aviation uh, Special Operations Regiment and uh, Air Force Special Operations Regiment. We also, or Special Operations Command, we trained with the 26 Mu who we would deploy with. We had a very full plate. However, uh, to also address your point there, John, when in that time throughout the rest of the war on the special operations side, not just in the teams themselves, but I'm talking when somebody puts a hat on their head that's got a green, that's a green beret, the minute that they are a green beret, they know which uh, special forces group they're going to. And that special forces group was geographically aligned. They knew if they were going to Iraq or Afghanistan, and the same was so for Air Force and Navy SEALs, all the special operations. When the SEALs got their trident, they knew which team they were going to. They knew, they usually knew, okay, my team, my exact SEAL platoon is going to go to this particular part of this city in Ramadi. Uh, So we were the only ones out that had this complete ambiguity uh, on you know, you had better luck in Vegas and rolling the dice. Uh, and that's, that's not good because special operations forces are not general purpose forces. And I knew that we're probably going to get off of the Mew. I, the very first deployment for training that we did to uh, Nevada, I came back. Uh, my understanding from multiple deployments, combat deployments in Iraq was we're going to need support personnel, especially if we leave and separate from the, the Marine uh, expeditionary unit on the ships. And so I drew drafted a list of a heavy, medium and light personnel package of enablers. And then a very minimal, the minimum was six. I fought for a whole year, negative results. We finally got on the ship and connected with the uh, army special operations command that we were going to work for in Afghanistan. They approved uh, just the minimal number, not the heavy, medium, light, but the minimal of six. And then I got this furious email from MARSOC, uh, their G3, one of their uh, staff officers, just lit me up. Uh, How dare you ask for anybody? And uh, he just said, take your pick because you're only going to get five. Tell me which, you know, six was the minimum. I mean, we had nobody to maintain weapons, order food. Uh, You're basically, and again, you're sensing this trend like, yeah, the Marine Corps probably didn't want, if you don't provide any logistics, then you're not going to do any operations or they'll be very, very short lived. You can't sustain yourselves. You can't sustain yourselves. Right. And so in your pre-deployment training, you're realizing you're not only Nick, the new guy, 
in Special Operations Command. You're on the outs with your home country, the Marine Corps, too. So you're between two things. But as you're preparing for combat and when you deploy, and we're working up to the events of March 4th, 2007. But as you're working up to deploy and once you get in country into Afghanistan, can you describe for us what was different, what you were discovering was different about being a MARSOC Marine from being a Force Reconnaissance Marine? What was that distinction you were beginning to suss out? So it is a very good question. These are initial task force was manned just like, um, and I think the Marine Corps designed this very intentionally. Uh, so when you would deploy on the ships as the Marines, they had what was called at that time, Maritime Special Purpose Force, the MSPF. And so you had a force recon platoon of 25 uh, Marines, and then you had a security element from the infantry, and then you had all these intel uh, personnel that would uh, be able to fuse all this different human and signals intelligence and and direct you, you know, to uh, make good decisions and get on the target. And then you also had a lot of aviation assets, which was a very critical role uh, because at that time in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was a lot of explosive devices killing people driving down the roads and vehicles. So um, my only B-billet, non-operational assignment, was an instructor out in Yuma, Arizona at what's the Marine Corps' version of Top Gun. And it was, I saw the movie, the the new movie Top Gun this weekend. It was great. However, uh, I realized from Top Gun the importance of utilizing intelligence, joint assets, and especially joint aviation assets. And with so many Marines being killed and wounded on the roads, uh, it was very important uh, so from the start of when I left First Force Recon Company and was told I'm going to be uh, taking over the first MARSOC company, the first destination I went was Nellis Air Force Base. I met our aviation officer that I would recruit, and uh, he was going through Red Flag, talked to some personnel at Red Flag to make some more connections with the Air Force side. So I was in the Marine Corps. One of the big distinctions was we fight more as a Marine Air Ground Task Force, more organically. Uh, in MARSOC, I knew I had to fight jointly. And I had done a lot of joint operations with different soft elements, but this time I knew I'm going to be needing J-STARS, I'm going to need Air Force and Navy, I'm going to need everything we can get. And so all across the country in those nine days I had, and this may sound a little strange, having served in the Marines, they, there wasn't even a unit activated. So they just said, and I don't think I ever even was reimbursed. I was a young major, so I didn't really care. They just said, you got nine days drive. It'll catch up to you. There'll be a, but there's no unit for us to like headquarters Marine Corps monitors said, just drive, just check out. And it was real confusing there. And first Marine Expeditionary Force, they're like, where are you going to go? If you check out of here, we have to, and I'm like, Hey, call this guy. And so I literally packed everything up in my truck, drove east, checked in nine days later, but in route, I hit uh, red flag, Nellis, Air Forces, Top Gun School. I went out to uh, uh, the 160th, that's the Army Special Operations Aviation Regiment. Uh, they fly the, their transport and attack helicopters uh, for Special Operations Forces in Fort Campbell. Uh, 
uh, did a lot of coordination with them, thinking that we could likely need their assets. And, and we developed tr training over the next year with them. And then I went down to Hurlburt Field, uh, talked to the Air Force Special Operations Command, uh, developed a, a training regiment that we would later execute that year, and then did the same at Fort Bragg uh, with uh, the Army Special Operations Command and then the Joint Special Operations Command. I did that before checking in uh, to Camp Lejeune. So it was a straight shot, kind of a red eye. But to answer your question, I knew we would need to fight jointly and I was trying to uh, build these bridges uh, that that worked. It was a double-edged sword, John. So I was building these bridges. I got a lot of discouragement from uh, individuals saying, hey, don't the Army 160 is Special Operations Aviation Regiment. They only support the Tier 1 units, Delta Force, Navy SEAL, SEAL Team 6. They won't support regular green braids, regular seals, and they're not going to support the new kid on the block. However, I guess we were the shiny object in the, the Army Special Operations Aviation Regiment, the 160th. They set up training with this, and when we would do this training throughout our workups jointly with the Navy SEALs, the Army Special Operations Aviation Regiment, and the AFSOC uh, Air Force Special Operations Command, as well as the Marines that we would deploy with on the 26th MU, the reputation was that the Marines were serious. They they have just cleaned deck. You know, the, these are the decathletes. They've won every event. And so that sent some signals that uh, we were the serious competitor on the block. All of the Special Operations Command all of a sudden was like, okay, this is kind of the favored son. And, and there was a concern with, uh, unfortunately in combat, you shouldn't, you know, we're all American forces. Uh, so we were being looked at it more as competitor internally, the brand new kid on the block. We had a lot of intelligence assets, but one thing that we lacked was anything non-organic. So we didn't have our own aviation. We didn't have our own support for ordering parts, replacing parts on vehicles, communication gear, weapons, so I knew, and that's why I kept pressing this every week about our manpower. We really need to increase. And then uh, internally in, in MARSOC, they had a an organization inside the Marine Special Operations Command that was formed with 419 personnel called the Marine Special Operations Support Group. That's not a McDonald's sandwich, the McSausage, and it's not a, a group for a 12-step program uh, with the Marine Special Operations Support Group. These were people of support occupational fields designed to deploy and support. And we were the very first and only ones at that time. Um, but they they turned, they shut the valve completely off. Um, you know, and I was really scorned uh, by the components operations section, the G3, for asking for the minimum six. And I'd been... I've been asking for these. I even asked on the 26 Marine Expeditionary Unit, the, the group of 2,600 Marines that we deployed with, I asked the, the MU commanding officer, who was a, uh, he was a senior officer, a colonel. I developed a good, close personal relationship with him, and they were the theater reserve. They sat and did exercises and sat in reserve the whole entire six-month deployment. But I asked him, uh, sort of like in the Bible in Sodom and Gomorrah, at the I whittled my list down to the day I left. I said, sir, if we could just get one Marine 
I said, if, if I could get an admin Marine to take care, I've had a lot of Marines at senior ranks and they needed uh, their fitness report evaluations. I, I had no support whatsoever. It was all this reach back support. And, uh, and then that just exasperated the problem when we deployed from the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit. We got off in Africa, flew into uh, Bagram, and they placed us right on the Afghan-Pakistan border, the most formidable train in the world in the Khyber Pass there. Uh, snow, this is February of 2006, 14,000 foot elevation, completely covered in snow. Um, and they kind of had this, you know, uh, red herring, you know, paper tiger. They drew a, not with boundaries or grid, just a blob on the top of the tour borders. And like, you're going to go up there. And at first I thought, wow, okay, that's the last place Osama bin Laden was sighted. That sounds good. But we quickly realized, okay, the American taxpayers built this, the only paved road in Afghanistan, this highway connecting the capitals of Afghanistan and Pakistan. And we quickly, we deployed on the ship, but we sent our intel element. We flew them forward into Afghanistan. So they beat us in there by a month. And it was very quickly uh, ascertained that um, what's fueling the war is a lot of uh, big money from some Arab states, as well as poppy. And this uh, poppy and opium that would be grown and harvested and shipped out of Afghanistan through Pakistan. Uh, what right there on that border, you'd have this sanctuary in Pakistan where these people, foreign fires would get radicalized and they'd come across and they weren't crossing any mountains or imagery analysts. We had enough Intel figured out nobody's going over this mountain. They're coming in, bribing the border guards, which was easy to do and using this road to get across very quickly. And that accelerated this resurgence of foreign fighters in Afghanistan, which led up to four March. And so here we are on four March, uh, which is the focus of the new book, a few bad men written by Fred Galvin, former Marine Corps major, MARSOC officer. It's March 4th, 2007, far Eastern Afghanistan along the Pakistan border. Fred, take us into the events of that day. What happened? So we were given this mission to uh, focus on the this blob, this undefined area. It was just a circle on a map up on the top of the Tor Boers. And we knew that uh, the Army Green Bray Colonel that wanted us to do that uh, knew that was kind of like a safe zone. Uh, it would do some probably more like aligned to adventure training. Uh, like you'd come out here to Yosemite and hike around versus uh, really getting after the enemy. And this is how a lot of commanders in that era got promoted. It wasn't for any risks that they took or all the missions that they succeeded at. It's if making sure they didn't do one thing wrong. So his bid for success was to put the Marines out in the middle of nowhere, unsupported so they really couldn't do anything gives us a mission impossible, put us on the top of Tor Bora Mountains, sell it to us like it's, you know, we're going after bin Laden. And then um, then he said, hey, Fred, you must, I can't have another Operation Red Wings, which is what happened in the Marcus Luttrell book, uh, Lone Survivor. That was uh, Operation Red Wings. We can't have another disaster. You need to have a quick reaction force, able to immediately reinforce your uh your actions in the, in the operating area. So I said, okay, with that being said, um, we were approved one, 
uh, aviation mission to go and do a visual reconnaissance. After that, we always would uh, stage a team from our force recon platoon uh, to go out and conduct a dismounted reconnaissance in on the top of the Torbor Mountains. But we, we the aviation assets to insert us, which were sitting on the airfield right there where we were. And I mean, sitting and sitting and sitting and doing nothing and sitting. Um, we were continually denied, um, you know, this insert platform. So we started to look at where the snow was melting. Uh, our imagery analysts were looking at this. And so we, uh, we figured there's this place to the east. We could possibly drive up there and insert them. And then we could, there was an American base manned by U.S. Army military police right on the Afghan-Pakistan border. And so I had coordinated with the uh, U.S. Army platoon commander uh, for the military police that we'd be able to stage a quick reaction force there in vehicles and that they'd be able to camp out there. And that's one of the missions we were doing that morning was to do a face-to-face coordination to make sure that not only would she approve, but that there was no no negative sentiment. And uh, so we went in there to do the face-to-face liaison ask any type of uh, atmospherics intelligence regarding the enemy. And then we were going to conduct a mounted reconnaissance into the mountains to see how high up we can get. Uh, I wanted to see that train before I sent the Marines in myself, which is what we did. Uh, But when we first arrived on the 4th of March at uh, this base in Torquem Gate, we went through this little village called Body Cove. And that's kind of the logistics. We, we knew there was four suicide bombers. We knew which house they were in and that they were planning an attack on American forces. But when we drove through that village in the morning, it was a normal atmospherics, hustle and bustle, men, women, and children at the bazaar. We made the coordination at the army base at 630 in the morning, face to face, roughly 630. And then they were conducting uh, pre-mission rehearsals we call them uh, immediate action drills. So they would yell out contact front, contact right. And then their drivers in the turret, they had these big bomb suits with literally space, look like space helmets. And they would duck down inside the turret inside the vehicle. And then the drivers would yell drive, 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 drive. And so, you know, I was shocked that, okay, their procedure is basically, it's not, it is to duck and run. If they get shot at, it's to duck and run. The worst part of that is this Torquem Gate base sat in this valley, valley with very steep hills on all sides. So right there on Afghan Pakistan, you're being observed. Uh, and when you line up on your patrol about ready to leave and you're doing your rehearsals, you're telegraphing your future actions. Uh, that was very alarming to myself and the 30 Marines on our patrol. So after that coordination, we left before their patrol did, and we headed out south to get into the tour bores to conduct our mounted reconnaissance, which is the second phase of our uh, mission. And then afterwards, we got back on the road, the Highway 1, the paved road, and we went into Body Cove to do to start a meet and greet with the tribal elders. And that's where we encountered this complex ambush. Got onto the highway, the atmospherics, complete change in baseline. Uh, We saw nothing but military age fighting men lined up on the side of the road. This was totally different. They were all facing 
to the, towards the center of the road as we drove down this highway, staring at us. A car bomb then detonated right before we were going to pull over. A car bomb blew up right in front of our second vehicle, right on the bumper. And this was a van filled with explosives and mortar rounds, blasting shrapnel and fuel. The, the fuel burnt trees over 100 feet in the air, uh, sending shrapnel everywhere. The turret gunner in that vehicle was on fire. He got knocked down. He stood up and then he saw a vehicle. This was at 9.03 in the morning when we were attacked, so broad daylight. A vehicle came uh, perpendicular, T-bone, uh, had a driver and then three uh, armed jihadists hanging out of the windows, firing their AK-47s fully automatic at this vehicle. This vehicle was unlike the other five. The other five were fully enclosed. Uh, armored Humvees. This one had a, a steel panels in the back, but it was an ambulance. So we could load any types of casualties in the back. So it had thinner armor and it appeared much different. It appeared thinner and it was thinner. And that's the one they attacked with the car bomb. And that's the one they attacked with the vehicle when, uh, and they, they did it very well planned. Uh, we were almost had that lead vehicle almost across a bridge and so they slammed on the brakes when we got attacked so we wouldn't be separated and be divided. Mm -hmm. uh, but we stopped short of this bridge in this, at the spin pool bridge. Uh, as soon as our, uh, the two men in that second vehicle stood to their feet, aimed in, made quick work, killed the jihadists in the uh, Toyota Prado sports utility vehicle. The driver of that vehicle bailed out and he was fighting and he survived. He later testified as a witness in the court of inquiry against us. The government paid, the U.S. government paid him salation payments uh, for the three terrorists that were killed in his vehicle. And he testified in court against us as a witness. Uh, <clears throat> so we made quick work of the three jihadists in that vehicle. Then we started receiving fire on the right or the north side on the opposite side of the road. And this was from dismounted jihadists in formations where one would provide suppressing fire while the other would maneuver. And then they would bound their advancing towards us. We were on a road that was elevated above this dry riverbed and our turret gunners, it was easy to observe down. And, um, you know, that's some of the tenants that we learned from the infantry is take the high ground, maintain fire superiority. Uh, and we rained down the first two vehicles, the turret gunners and vehicle one and two, aimed in their medium machine guns, their M240 Gauss, uh, and the uh, Marine in the troop compartment in vehicle two aimed in his light machine gun uh, and just made quick work of those guys. We were at that same time receiving sniper fire from a mountain that hit the right sides of our vehicle two. Uh, the U.S. Army Criminal Investigative Divisions, they sent, after we uh, returned, they pulled the uh, armor off of that truck sent it down to Georgia to the U.S. Army's Criminal Investigative Laboratories, and they determined the meteorologist. I'm not a smart guy. Uh, the meteorologist, uh, the guy that analyzes the stuff, determined that the impacts on that were from a, a Soviet Dragunov sniper rifle. So um, means the Air Force determined, uh, I know I'm jumping around a little bit, later on they, the investigating officer, they sent a, a real smart guy, more akin to a mobster, like a wise guy, uh, didn't really have the qualifications, but he determined it was his, you know, thought 
you know, illogical as it was, but he opined that we either shot our own vehicles before we went out on patrol or that when we were on patrol, although we were in a column formation, he said that we shot ourselves. So like we would reach out over the vehicle and shoot the armor on the side of our vehicle during an ambush. Uh, the, in the book, it, so much of this, all this exculpatory evidence, it was very strange in the courtroom. And I know I'm jumping around a little bit here, but you'll find in the last half of the book, when all this exculpatory evidence came out, the media would kindly be escorted out of the courtroom and they knew what each witness was going to say. I know, John, you were turning, you know what somebody's going to testify generally because you've pre-interviewed them, uh, much as was the case in this. It was a long nine month uh, investigation prior to this trial. And, um, you know, they have 45 criminal investigators. You pretty much have an idea. I mean, I don't think there's any case I've ever heard of where there's this many dogpiling of, uh, 45 criminal investigators and four prosecuting attorneys. That's kind of like the hallmark saying when you care enough to send your very best. I mean, we were sent a signal of how this court case wanted it, the outcome was going to be. And so March 4th, 2007, the ambush, fortunately, although there were injuries that occurred on that day and many that occurred in the years to follow Fred Galvin, that was just the beginning. And as you got back to base, a story had already been put out in the media and everyone politically, militarily, everyone was reacting to the story uh, that the media put out. The media is the most powerful entity on earth. They have the power to make the innocent guilty and make the guilty innocent, said Malcolm X decades ago. And it seemed that was a lesson, unfortunately, you had to experience firsthand. A court of inquiry followed, years spent fighting charges, being cleared, and continuing to fight for your honor and the honor of your men. Fred Galvin, the book, A Few Bad Men, enjoyed speaking about it. Are there any final words you want to leave the audience with? So I did also want to mention that when we left that kill zone, that ambush site, um, things were... I believe that ambush was intended for the army patrol that was, was preparing to leave that base. And I believe they were intending to kill them and they knew that they'd probably run. Uh, they had a two phase attack, which was to attempt to kill as many Americans as they could. And if that backfired and if the Americans fought back and they lost, they had a pre-made story. So if, if somebody here in America was killed on the street, it would be very difficult to have the, the facts vetted an editor or producer, you know, approve a story that is released in 20 minutes later. Uh, so they had these stringers prepared and uh, this ambush was very deliberate. Not only did we receive fire on both sides of the road, a car bomb sniper, they had a mob of unarmed men uh, form right in front of our patrol so we couldn't leave. They dragged a vehicle across the road. So um, we were in that kill zone for about five minutes. Uh, once we assessed that uh, the second vehicle that was hit with that car bomb, it drove through the car bomb. I mean, we thought everyone was killed. Um, but when we found out that this communication was knocked out so that we used hand and arm signals that everybody's okay. And after five minutes, and we immediately sent reports, both voice and data that we are, 
we are under attack. We're receiving small arms fire and we got hit with a, a car bomb. We sent that back and that was received. Uh, but uh, the army special operations command that we were working for there in Bagram, Afghanistan, uh, ridiculed us and laughed and joked and typed up reports and said that the Colonel Green Bray had to find out the news from the media, uh, which was totally false. I mean, the, in the court of inquiry, again, uh, during one witness's testimony, which you can read in the book, A Few Bad Men, he said, I was in the Joint Operations Center and I immediately heard over the voice radio that there's a troops in contact, you know, and then I sent the data uh, on a text, uh, secure text system that we got hit by a suicide vehicle, improvised explosive device and small arms attack. So um, they immediately knew, but they were the army, of course, seeing us as the favored son, they decided to uh, use this attempt to, throw us under the bus. And it wasn't just an attempt. They succeeded. Uh, what happened when we got back to base, I immediately heard from one of our Marines that uh, this was on the BBC radio. Uh, we knew something very serious had happened. Uh, we started feeding the beast, the information to both our, our Colonel, the Green Bray Colonel and the local Colonel who was the battle space commander. They started getting information directly from us about what was happening. Um, but that did lead to almost immediate mass riots in the city of Jalalabad, the nearest major city there. Um, the governor of that area, Governor Sharzai, was protesting to the president of Afghanistan, Hamid Karzai. Uh, if you haven't looked into his background, he's got a little checkered pass there, as uh, crooked as a dog's hind leg. And then uh, President Hamid Karzai publicly condemned uh, our Marine Special Operations Task Force. The Army generals in Afghanistan were quick to uh, make a decision, and that decision came after the investigating officer, this Air Force colonel uh, who's in the book, his name is Patrick Bahana. He took, on the second day, he had only interviewed the first two vehicles of our Marines, hadn't talked to a single Afghan. Afghan, and they made the decision to cease all operations and we're going to get kicked out of the country. And so at that point, um, the investigation would finish a month later and it uh, did accuse seven of us of uh, homicide. They said that we allegedly killed 19 and wounded 50 Afghan civilians, of which there was men, women, and children, elderly. And uh, this was the largest number of alleged Afghan civilians killed by direct fire weapons, meaning rifles and machine guns in the war in Afghanistan. And ultimately, what did what did the court conclude in in terms of your record and the the events that day? That's a very good question. So, um, I want to be clear about this because the court lasted three and a half weeks from the seventh to the 29th of January two thousand eight. And there was uh, media in there during mainly the prosecution's case. So the media did what the media does. They wrote stories based on the information they had. The jury heard everything. Uh, the media did not. Uh, so the jury used um, terminology that has uh, not been utilized in uh, prior 
military justice cases, they said it, we acted appropriately. And, um, you know, this was, it was strange. And, uh, John, I know your legal background, you probably know some of the background of uh, prior courts of inquiry. So there was this case of a drill instructor down in uh, Paris Island over 50 years prior. Um, he marched some recruits and I believe, I forget the exact number, less than a dozen, I think around six died that evening. They had his court of inquiry in the morning. And so they referred him from that. They didn't wait a year. uh, And then they had a court martial of which uh, the staff Sergeant McKeown uh, asked to have uh, Lieutenant General Chesty Puller testify in. And, uh, but, uh, you know, he received a very fairly light sentence for, um, his actions, but, uh, you know, the decision, you know, he was guilty in our case, they didn't say we were innocent or guilty. They said we acted appropriately, but they released that four months later on, uh, the Friday of Memorial day weekend to one news source saying we acted appropriately according to the rules of engagements and tactics, techniques, and procedures for a complex ambush, which was, um, you know, considering this case, I was, we were hoping that they would use something more specific and clear and make a larger address. So uh, just uh, as a non-Marine and I've, I've never served in uniform, it just that the, the idea that both the core and the, the rest of the military writ large DOD would react to the MARSOC unit in this way, both prior to the incident, not provide the kind of long tail support that you you were describing, as well as the the legal back you know backup in this incident. If you had to sum it up, like what was the issue? Why was the both the Marine Corps so resistant to the existence of MARSOC, and you know that that ultimately led to so many of these little decisions along the way that that put you in the situation that you found yourself in? Very very good question because uh, you see. There's a lot of intention to keep us on the ships, to keep our task organization the same as it was uh, when we were on the ships to control it. Um, it was is very interesting. So just fear, I mean, fear of change, just fear of you know, uh, or um, fear of exposing you to action that where you you might have you know an incident like the Red Wings or 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 something. I like believe that. there was fear, and it was more of. You know, they wanted that status quo. They wanted to. And then also, if if there is a declared, you know, the Marine Corps has always had elite units such as reconnaissance and force reconnaissance. But if you actually put a term in, and I remember you know, I was kind of an anomaly. I was a force recon platoon commander for over six years and in two different force recon companies, one in Okinawa and one in Camp Pendleton. Um, and I'd always hear from the Marine colonels that we supported that, uh, you're not special. And, uh, you know, I'd always be like, do we have a label on our uniform that says we're special? But, uh, I think in the Marine Corps, you have a lot of niche communities. You have pilots and they're wearing their little device, their golden leg spreader, differentiating themselves. You have the drill instructors wearing their campaign cover, like a smoky bear hat. You have the, uh, young Marines in the silent, drill platoon there in Washington, D.C. with the special uh, historic M1 Grand Rifle. Uh, nobody's 
got a label on their chest or back that says they're special, but there there are differentiators. But the most I've never heard people scorn uh, those in the silent drill platoon or aviators or drill instructors. They use respect, but um, personally, you know, for years and years and years, I would receive mainly from senior officers, mainly on the infantry side, just uh, you know, complete scorn that you're not special. After a while, uh, that's counterproductive. You, you actually, if if these elite units are working for you to support you to to do precision raids and deep reconnaissance, you'd actually want them to be their best. And and normally, you know, I deployed in Iraq and on ships and served a lot of these colonels. It would take them towards the halfway point or the end of the deployment to have them understand, like, wow. That's what these, you know, units can do for me. They can really report this information so I can make sound decisions. Um, but generally those officers, they never senior officers and never chosen to go down that road. And they don't really fully understand how to their capabilities and how to employ units. So uh, there's a lot of strong resistance to in the Marine Corps to having this elite with an elite, as we saw historically during several iterations of Marine Corps history. Well, it's 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 a really fascinating story that touches both on the the real lived events that that you and your men went through, uh, but it also seems to be a story about the institutions and how the sometimes it just baffling petty interests of of the various institutions come up against the the reality of of fighting a war uh it's and it's 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 a really fascinating story i mean what would you like the reader to take away from the book um which which i encourage everybody to read one thing that's clear in this book and it's very pertinent to this time that we're at right now where these nexus intersects is when you look at russia and you look at a force that's larger in size, has greater technology, should have every advantage with, you know, this tech and manpower in their favor. Um, One issue, though, is look how they started. It was this deception of, they called it a special military operation. Even the people in Russia had no clue of, you know, that they were actually going in and going to conduct a a deliberate attack and assault into Ukraine. Uh, you look at some of the potential reasons, and I would submit that one of those is the lack of morale. It's a lack of trust in senior officers. And I would say right now, um, one thing, John, I'll uh, let you know is I just left. I mean, I, I, as I described, I had my small business for four and a half years, and then I worked separate to that following that four more years as a civilian in Hawaii with uh, the Marine Corps and other agencies, uh, which I just left last month. And there is a massive, massive morale problem all across the Marine Corps and the, the U.S. Armed Services. So that's something that listeners need to pay close attention to. Uh, we are not going back to war in the future with a country like the Taliban in, in Afghanistan with the, the Taliban. That's politically probably infeasible right now, but I would submit that if 
Um, if the Chinese push the 96 miles east across the Straits and invade Taiwan, we'll probably go to war with China. And that's something that we have to be ready for. And we have to have a force that's effective and has high morale. And right now we need to be paying attention to is this moral hazard, which I've described as a nonfiction story. Is this something that we need to pay closer examination of in our own military? And I would submit that uh, it, it can have the same type of consequences for America as it is right now with uh, one of our adversaries, Russia, as they've invaded Ukraine and, and are very ineffective. Fred Galvin, the book is A Few Bad Men, The True Story of U.S. Marines Ambushed in Afghanistan and Betrayed in America. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I do encourage our, our listeners to uh, read the book and take to heart some of the lessons contained in it. Uh, Fred Galvin, thank you so much. Thank you very much, John. Appreciate being interviewed. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For John Waters and everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.